This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. I'm Stuart in LA, but I'm chucked into the Bates Motel. For the next six weeks, over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com, I, Arnie, Brock, we're all discussing Psycho. Both the original Hitchcock movie and the five films that spawned from it, we're really getting into it as part of our fall donation drive. I hope you can join us for that. It is a $25 donation, and all the details are on our homepage, www dot now playing podcast dot com but i have two cabins in the motel if you will i'll also for three weeks be here at books and nachos discussing the books psycho was a novel before it was a movie as difficult as that is to conceive and i really do think that is the hump i struggle with it this is the first time i've read the novel i have seen hitchcock's movie many times and much like when i approached peter benchley's jaws it is very difficult to strike the famous images from your head to cast the actors that are in the movie as the characters that are on the page i think there are three significant ways that robert Bloch's psycho is different from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. And I think it was important for me to concentrate on those differences to help me see the story apart from what the Master of Suspense did with it. Because let's face it, it's really hard to forget about Janet Leigh, Anthony Perkins, the shimmery black and white imagery. Even when Gus Van Zandt will remake this, he will be a slave to what Hitchcock did. I just don't know how you forget about Hitchcock, but there are three tricks you can at least emphasize to help you see the story as it was in 1959 on the page before it became a movie in 1960. And the first way is that this Norman Bates on the page is no matinee idol. He would never be in a movie in 1959. He was not a star the way that Anthony Perkins is. When you get the physical description, he's overweight, he's 40 years old, he wears tiny little glasses and has this soft, meek little voice. I think if you were going to cast him with an actor from today, maybe Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, but certainly, you know, a middle-aged individual, a shabby character actor, not someone that was a 20-something star of the moment like Anthony Perkins was. What you're really casting when you look at the page is Ed Gein, one of the most famous serial killers of all time. Ed Gein had his crimes exposed in 1957, two years before Robert Block finished Psycho. Robert Block lived 40 miles from where those crimes happened. I do think that it is his basis and that he largely just said, I am going to take Ed Gein and put him in a motel. And and that is how he conceived of this character. Whereas Hollywood, I think, really had to take an extra step to ease people into it. They had the job of wanting us to like Norman physically, instantaneously. So they went with someone more handsome, more youthful, uh, more appealing overall than what is on the page. The second way that I think it's really divergent is I think the Bates Motel is not in California. When you watch the movie, Marion Crane goes from Phoenix up 
through California on a two-day drive and wind somewhere in Fairvale, California. Here, I believe Robert Block kept it close to home. I believe that he kept it in Ed Gein territory. We know that Mary Crane, which is the name of the character on the page, starts out in San Antonio, Texas, and that she heads, quote, up north and ends up driving 18 hours. I did a little map quest, and if you go straight north from San Antonio in 18 hours, you wind up around Wisconsin, which is near, you know, Plainview, with Ed, Ed Gein's home. Basically, I don't think that Robert Block did much to change the details of the criminal that he was profiling. And by making it Wisconsin and not palm trees in sunny California, again, the Hitchcock imagery is less strong as I experience this story. And the third way that I really feel like you're going to see something different on the page than was in the movie is just looking at our main victim. Mary Crane, the literary creation, is not in it that much. I mean, if you think about her journey in the movie, Janet Lee feels like she's in half the movie and then you're shocked when she's so abruptly taken out of it. Here, Mary Crane appears on page 9. She's dead by page 27. There's a hundred more pages to go. She doesn't have much time to leave the impression that she does. They don't work so hard to try and make you like her. There's no mistaking that our main character is Norman Bates. Uh, we start there. The very first image is of Norman Bates in his room reading a story about Incas. And he's kind of salivating over this ritual of human sacrifice. And we we get images that basically are telling us the story that we're going to see, but in the context of this nonfiction treatise on the Incan savages who have this old woman beating a drum of human skin and forcing the men to go into a frenzy and sacrifice someone. It, it's setting a tone for Norman Bates' life. There's a reason why he's focusing on this story. There's a reason that we're beginning here. They're dropping a clue. Audiences would not know what I'm going to go ahead and spoil. I am presuming every listener here knows Norman Bates and his mother are the same person. And I think that this was the beginning clue to show the human sacrifice, the use of skin, taxidermy, all the things that Ed Gein represents, all the things that Norman Bates are, are going to do, are introduced in a very sly, fictionalized way here with Norman reading the Inca story and then his mother walking in and yelling at him and telling him to turn on the motel sign. In the movie, you follow Marion Crane and you don't know where she'll end up. She does a bad thing. She steals money from her job. She's on the run to her lover. And you may not know, if you didn't know the back details of, of what Psycho was about, that she'd wind out at the Bates Motel. Here, as Norman flicks on the sign and we hear the rain, we know exactly where this Mary Crane is going to be. She feels more like a victim this time. I feel like she's more doomed. It's easier to predict that something bad is going to happen to her right here at the Bates Motel. Mary Crane is very similar to Marion Crane, the movie character from Hitchcock's movie. 
they have the same backstory. They took $40,000 from their job on a Friday. It's a mad dash, uh, a crazy way of trying to run away from their life of spinsterdom and marry a man who wants to be with her, but is long distance and who, who is saddled by debt. In fact, it is really underlined in the novel how all three of the main characters have the same problem. They're burdened with their parents. Mary Crane couldn't go to college, couldn't have her own profession because her father died and she had to attend to her mother. And her boyfriend is trapped in Fairvale, Wisconsin or California or wherever Fairvale is, but it's not San Antonio. Far away, he's trapped because he saddled with his parents' debt and has to work it off in this hardware store. These two only meet. Remember, this is pre-internet, so they, they didn't go on Match.com. They only meet because... He wins a trip on a cruise, and it's the very same cruise that Mary's sister insists that she goes on when the mother dies, and they get a little money from that. She says, you're owed a vacation, so she pushes her sister Mary to go on the same cruise, meet Sam, they start this affair, and now she just can't wait anymore. She feels like... I'm almost 30, and I've got to be married. It, I, it was probably a scandal in 1959. It's hard for me to conceive of that world. It's so different now. But yes, I imagine that a woman in her late 20s in 1959 is willing to do anything to marry the man she loves, to erase her debts, to run from her past. I'll buy the fact that she, in a moment of craziness, takes $40,000 from the safe buys a new car, and heads out of town. And, of course, Norman is saddled with the biggest parent conflict. Uh, <laughs> what we understand at first is just that he's trapped in a dead-end motel and that his mother has mental problems and abuses him. And like Sam Loomis, like Mary Crane, he just can't get out of the hole that he's fallen into. The, the parents really have screwed the children in all circumstances. In the movie, when Norman meets Marion... You get the sense that there is a special relationship. There's a spark. Maybe it's romantic because they're both young and youthful, attractive people. We think that maybe they're going to fall in love. This could be a romance. This could be the story about a woman who runs towards one thing and realizes she wants something else. You think that they're going to help each other get out of their traps. Not true here. I mean, when you have, yes, the obese oily, easily embarrassed, just really, he never doesn't come off as strange and socially awkward. I don't get the sense that Mary thinks much of him at all. I mean, she basically tells him he needs to grow up when she sits down with him for a snack. You know, the rain brings her in, she's going to check in for a night, and then she's going to drive the extra 18 miles to get to her boyfriend. And she's, yeah, she is not charmed by what she sees here at the Bates Motel. She's not particularly sympathetic. And just not the same thing as the movie. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film. And here, I really do feel like this is a moment from a talk show. You need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Stop stuffing squirrels. Go out and have a drink and go find some friends. Go on a date. Don't be trapped here alone on a Friday night with your mother at a rundown hotel. But something about the conversation sticks with her. I, I mean, I think it does come down to one line of dialogue. On the page, it, it reads, I think perhaps all of us go a little crazy sometimes. It's finessed in the movie, 
But that sticks with her, and as she returns to her room, she contemplates her crime. She does start to think about going back, repaying the money that she took, and and forgetting about her crazy plan. She doesn't want to end up like a Norman. I think it plays differently than the movie. I don't think that Norman is the voice of reason that he is for her in the movie. I think here it's just like, you know what, this place is creepy, I'm being crazy, I'm getting out of here tomorrow. But of course she doesn't. And one of the things that does come from the novel that has been made very famous by the movie, The Shower Scene. Mother, Norman's crazy alter ego, although at this time we have no reason to believe that she's not a woman up at the house watching her son romance this hotel guest, comes down and slashes her up in the shower after Norman has passed out drinking and watching her through a peephole get out of her clothes. The movie scene is so famous, has been copied so many times, the way that, you know, we go into it over at the podcast. I think it's fun as a comparative to just conceive of this moment as it is on the page. I'm just going to read from the book right here. She turned both faucets on full force and let the warmth gush over her. The roar was deafening, and the room was beginning to steam up. That's why she didn't hear the door open, or note the sound of footsteps. And at first... When the shower curtains parted, the steam obscured the face. Then she did see it there. Just a face, peering through the curtains, hanging in midair like a mask. A headscarf concealing the hair, and the glassy eyes stared inhumanly. But it wasn't a mask, it couldn't be. The skin had been powdered dead white, and two hectic spots of rouge centered on the cheekbones. It wasn't a mask. It was the face of a crazy old woman. Mary started to scream, and then the curtains parted further, and a hand appeared holding a butcher knife. It was the knife that, a moment later, cut off her scream and her head. Kind of fun, nice way of doing it here. I mean, you can see how Robert Block is cheating, if you were. I mean, part of what the movie struggles with is how do we show Anthony Perkins killing Janet Lee as mother and not tell us it's mother. Here, there's no reason to think that this is a fat 40-year-old coming at her. You're easier to be duped here on the page than you ever would be in the movie. Norman and mother can be in the same scene together, talking, and you wouldn't think twice about it. Whereas if they do it in the movie, it has to be voiceover, and we never see mother's face, and it, you might just be more aware of what's going on. And again, we are only 30 pages in of a 125-page story, uh, the rest of it is very, very similar to the movie. Many of the same beats. Mary's sister Lila comes back into it. She confronts Sam Loomis and they partner with a private detective named Arbogast. And they believe that Mary is hiding somewhere with the stolen money. Arbogast runs down all the motels in the area and finally gets to Norman's. Catches him in the lie. Reads from the ledger identifies her handwriting that Mary Crane was indeed there even though Norman said he hadn't had guests in weeks and so then he goes up to the house to talk to mother maybe the old woman perched on the upstairs window saw something that night that she checked in and she proceeds to stab him to death using the razor Norman was shaving himself with that morning 
But before he did this, he called Lila and gave her an update. And so she's the one that remains determined that she wants to meet Mother. She thinks that this Mother knows something. And Sam and the local sheriff are more convinced that Arbogast got a tip from Norman and that Mary has gone on to Chicago. And that Arbogast was just trying to get reward money and cut Sam and Lila out. So very, very similar to the movie. A detail I like that's only on the page is that Norman learns about Mary's crime by Arbogast explaining about the stolen $40,000, and he gets envious. He's like, oh my god, I can't believe I dumped her body in the swamp with $40,000. I could use that money to escape. Robert Block is still trying to convince you that Norman is a person that wants to get away from his mother, and that if he had this $40,000, he could go buy a car, he could drive away, he, he would not have to deal with any more crimes. He would be willing, in fact, to escape his trap. And we cut back and forth between the sheriff and Norman, and you think that Norman's smarter than them. You know, you think that he's tricked them. All the locals of Fairvale think that Norman's mother has died, but clearly we know that she's upstairs in the house, and he keeps hinting at how he fooled them all, and that they believe that she took Strychnine with her handsome lover, a suicide pact, and, and there was a funeral. Norman knows better. And of course, we know better. We know. We saw the movie. We know where this is going. It's all the same. His taxidermy skills were used. He dug up her corpse. She's upstairs indeed in body, but not in soul. She is dead. And that the mother that has been killing is, in fact, the psycho side of Norman. But the climax where we learn all of this really feels like history repeating itself. The character of Lila, Mary's sister... On the page, she's made to seem to look almost like an identical twin to Mary. Not true in the movie, but the comparison is so striking that Norman knows instantly. The second that Lila comes to the motel pretending with Sam to be a married couple that wants to check in, he knows exactly who she is, why she is there. He's freaking out. He's turning to drink. He doesn't know how he's going to get out of this situation. But again, it feels like the first part of the story. He's looking through the peephole as they're in the shower. They find evidence of Mary being there with blood on it. We know at any moment, Mother's going to come barging in and kill them all because that's what happened at the start of this story. But Lila is actually the one to go up to the house to put herself in danger. She's determined. I got to say, I like Lila on the page. She seems like she's got a lot of spunk. Guess that's why she lives and her sister didn't. And, you know, again, this is such a famous moment in the movies when Lila discovers Mother. It, it, I might as well read it just to give you a comparative to how it runs on the page. You know, this rain has already started and it's been pounding. And it's like the drums of the Incas and he can feel that that old crone drummer urging the sacrifice. All of this stuff has happened. He's knocked out Sam down at the cabins and Lila is up exploring the house. All right, so here goes. Lila opened the door of the fruit cellar. It was then that she screamed. She screamed when she saw the old woman lying there, the gaunt, gray-haired old woman whose brown, wrinkled face grinned up at her in an obscene greeting. Mrs. Bates! Lila gasped. Yes. But the voice wasn't coming from those sunken, leathery jaws. It came from behind her, from the top of the cellar stairs, where the figure stood. Lila turned to stare at the fat, shapeless figure, half-concealed by her tight dress, which had then been pulled down incongruously to cover the garment beneath. She stared up at the shrouded shawl and at the white, painting, simpering face behind it. She stared at the garishly reddened lips, watched them part in a convulsive grimace. 
I am Norma Bates, said the high, shrill voice, and then there was the hand coming out, the hand that held the knife, and the feet were mincing down the stairs, and other feet were running, and Lila screamed again as Sam came down the stairs, and the knife came up, quick as death. Sam grasped and twisted the hand that held it, twisted it from behind until the knife clattered to the floor. Lila closed her mouth, but the scream continued. It was the insane scream of a hysterical woman, and it came from the throat of Norman Bates. It's a cliche now, but I imagine it was mind-blowing back in the day. I mean, transvestism, homosexuality, cannibalism, skinning and hides, all, all the things that Robert Block is dealing with here would have been so taboo. It had to be fiction. I think that this story had to have a reality basis in order to be popular. There were things probably like Psycho that had been written that never received publication because it was just too gross or it didn't receive a wide audience. Psycho received a wide audience because Ed Gein necessitated us looking at something so dark. But it was so dark, I feel like Robert Block had to help us by creating something that read as fiction that was just a story and had a happy ending you know here Norman gets stopped Lila is saved he goes to the institution it's all like it is in the movie I think the movie does it the best but Robert Block comes from that pulp world he wrote even before all of this he was a very successful writer who had done pulp sci-fi suspense stories he has a good turn of phrase and it's a page turner you know this is not a literary classic but it's an easy read you'll enjoy it i the, it flew by within an hour or two you could be done with psycho almost the time that it takes to watch the movie you could be through the book the movie is a far richer experience, but Block's book is the road map. And I, I think sometimes it's fun to go back to the map and see where you've gone, where you've come from. So I absolutely recommend this to anyone that's curious as an addendum to the movie. Uh, I, I, I won't abide by anyone that says the book was better in this circumstance. Many cases that's true. Not true of Psycho, but it doesn't need to be. It is a great companion. It's a great way to whet my appetite for the movie. It, it's It's out now. If you go to our page, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can go ahead and get the podcast and start down the journey with us. Come check in the Bates Motel. I will be back here at Books and Nachos to talk about Psycho 2. Robert Block wrote a sequel after the success of the movie. Really a response to Hollywood's take on his story, I think. We'll be discussing that Psycho 2 next week here at Books and Nachos. Until then, keep reading. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.